This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Hello, this is Eric Rostad coming to you right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm going to cover six different books I've recently read as part of my 2020 reading list. I didn't think I'd be able to pull enough information together for each of these books for its own episode, so I thought I'd just cover six of them quickly in, in this episode. So I'm just going to briefly describe each book, talk about some of the key insights, uh, takeaways from each one, and then also talk about how they've connected with other books for this reading project. If you're unfamiliar with the Books of Titans project, I started in 2017 I had and I had a couple goals going into it. One, I just wanted to read more books. There's so many good books out there, I wanted to read more of them. And then second, I wanted to remember what I read. I didn't want to start reading a bunch of books and then not be able to recall anything. So I put in place a lot of things to help me remember what it is that I read. My overarching purpose for this entire project is to seek truth in the world's best books. To do that, I scour lists of the best books, the ones that have influenced some of the world's top performers, and then I choose 52 books to read each year. I shoot for a book a week. I set my reading list in advance, a year in advance, and then I randomize the order of those 52 books and then and then try to read it in that order. So since January 2017, I've read 162 books and have just had an absolute blast with, with this project. So let's get into the books for, for today. The first one is Teaching a Stone to Talk by Annie Dillard. Uh, the, my pastor here in Nashville recommended this book to me, and I read it in March. It was book four out of 52 for, for this year's this year's list. And Teaching a Stone to Talk is a set of personal narratives where Annie Dillard takes two or, or more ideas, uh, experiences, or encounters, and then combines them in just this magical way. They are, are very short little stories, these narratives, uh, but there are not a lot of wasted words. So they're, they're short, but concise and, and powerful. They, they, they really pack a punch. Uh, some of the themes, uh, or, or one, one main theme is, is of aging. Um, she was 37 when this was published. And, and so, yes, yeah, some of them, some of them were along those lines. And, and I happened to pick this up right after turning 40. So it, it was something that was on my mind. And so uh, one one statement in particular really stuck out to me. And, and that's when she said this, she said, I thought I was younger and would have more time. I thought I was younger and would have more time. And uh, it's just something, I guess it stuck to me uh, turning 40. And, and just, you know, where did those first 40 years go they went they went by so so quickly and in that that thought of I thought I was younger and would have more time um just how quickly time goes and that's that's a, a theme I've seen a lot uh, in a lot of the books for this project is the importance of time the the fleetingness of time just how quickly it passes but then also how important it is and how you can't get it back um so that I thought I was younger and would have more time there was another section where uh reminded me of, of Walden. And that was on my 2017 reading list, Walden by, by Thoreau. And, uh, so this is, this reminded me of, of Walden Pond where 
uh, Thoreau makes a statement, uh, I came to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put rout to all that was not life. So here's a, here's a section in, in uh, Teaching a Stone to Walk by Annie Dillard that, that made me think of that. And she starts off like this. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I come to Holland's Pond not so much to learn how to live as, frankly, to forget about it. That is, I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular. Shall I suck warm blood, hold my tail high, walk with my footprints precisely over the prints of my hands? But I might learn something of mindlessness, something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at the last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, as the weasel lives as he should. And I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. End quote. I, I, I liked that section. I, I, I've, I've thought about this a lot in, in uh, I, sometimes I'll think of, of what, what, what does a dog do? And, and you think, just think of a dog playing or, or running or, or what does this animal do? And, and they kind of have a main thing that they do, but what do humans do? And, and I love that simplicity of, of, of instead of going for mindfulness, which is what, what it, people so often talk about now, she's going for mindlessness something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. I want to live as I should and, and as, a, as the weasel lives as he should. I thought it was a really cool thing. And then another part, uh, she mentioned the Franklin Expedition. And that stuck out to me because it was also referenced in the book I read right before this, which was The Sacred Romance. That was a book three of 52 for my for my list this year. And I did a separate episode on that. But there was a section where in that book, they talk about the Franklin Expedition, and then she brought it up again in this book. So two back-to-back books uh, mentioning this expedition that uh, I don't recall having uh, read about or, or heard about before. But basically, this Franklin Expedition, the they, they were going to explore the Arctic. And they loaded their ship with china place settings uh cut glass wine goblets and a hand organ but they failed to bring warm clothes and so they all perished they all froze to death and so after that there were other explorers who tried to find these guys and and you know ended up finding some traces of them but um but franklin expedition is kind of just known as this uh example of of extremely poor planning to to make a trip to the to the arctic but not to bring uh the basics like warm clothes but to bring you know exquisite china place settings and and a hand organ uh so just neat how that happens that's happened a lot in this project as well but it's even extra neat i guess when the books are back to bath back to back and they and they reference the same thing next book is bel canto by ann patchett that was this or that was book 5 of 52 for my list this year and I read it in March. This book it uh are you familiar with the Stockholm syndrome? That's where uh if if someone gets kidnapped, they they can start having feelings of affection and trust towards the kidnappers. And this book is basically well it 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 causes you to do that. 
uh, you start feeling affection and trust towards the terrorists in this story. Uh, you, you feel you feel compassion for the the hostages as well. But but this book is a it's it's a it's about a terrorist situation where where hostages are are taken, and it takes place in a South American country. It's never mentioned, but all inferences are that it is in Peru, um, as the story is really similar to a real life hostage situation that took place at the Japanese embassy in the San Isidro neighborhood of Lima, Peru. And I, I was interested in reading this book for a few few reasons. One is I used uh, during grad school, I worked in the San Isidro neighborhood in Lima, Peru. And so I was actually just a few blocks away from the Japanese embassy and and it looks like a it looks like a citadel. I mean, it's, there's there's huge walls around it now. there's um, there's guard gates at at kind of every corner. Um, and so and, and I would just kind of hear, stories every every now and then of of that hostage situation and and how it was such a big deal um so i wanted to read this this is a novel but uh i I, she kind of bases it off of of this real life thing that happened but then the 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 other really cool thing about this book is that it ties in opera and so as the hostage situation is is taking place there is an opera singer performing for uh, a Japanese businessman who is who Peru is trying to get to build a factory in the country, and so the book contains just a ton of opera references. It's very uh, Murakami esque in the in the sense of um, there's music throughout the the book, and and what I would try to do is to to listen to the music that was being referenced while I was reading the book, and that just really enhanced the the book as well. So. What was super interesting about this book is that I started reading it during the first week of quarantine for for the coronavirus. And even though this book is is about a hostage situation and that a, a quarantine for for coronavirus is, is vastly different, there were some similarities that that popped up, especially in this initial quarantine atmosphere. So it's just kind of funny how reading certain books at certain times can really, have a, a more of an impact, or you can almost relate more to to certain aspects of it that you, than you could at another time. So that that was funny to me as I was I was reading this. Um, another really neat thing in this book is that there's the, there's that opera singer, and then there is a translator, and those are two of the main t- characters in the book, and you have this neat connection going on to where the opera singer is singing throughout throughout the book even even during the hostage situation and her voice just kind of in uh, captures both the kidnapped and the kidnappers uh, so so music has this ability to to get past a lot of the divisions and and just pierce the people's heart heart in in this book but then you also and and so it's kind of this idea of of a universal language music being the the universal language but then you've got this this translator and he has a very different role in he is connecting other people through language and so you've got the woman opera singer she's singing and and connecting people through music and then you've got the translator he's he's connecting through people through language uh so just a neat kind of play throughout the book of, of those two characters and, and just a neat way to, 
to think about it. So I, I, I love opera. I love learning about opera. And, and so I, I got a little fix from this book, uh, for that. And then just the, the setting of it being in Peru, uh, in a place where I, I lived for a few months. And then also, uh, it's by Ann Patchett, who is a local, author here and she also owns a bookstore in in the Nashville area. So I I hadn't read any of Anne's books and so I wanted to to have one of her books on my list this year. So this book checked a lot of those those boxes. Next book, Letters from an Astrophysicist by Neil deGrasse Tyson. This was a really cool book. He he basically uh, takes letters that he's gotten over the years and then puts his response to those letters. And it, and it covers just a wide variety of topics. Uh, he also includes some op-eds that he's written for different uh, newspapers. And so, for example, I mean, he's, he's answering all these, these deep questions that could be about uh, religion versus science or um, what he teaches his kids. But then the, you'd read these op-eds and they'd be about um, the, the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center, uh, on September 11th. And here he lived just a few blocks away and, and, and actually saw a lot of it happen. I mean, he could look out his front window and, and, and see the towers. So uh, he was, you know, when the towers fell, like the, the debris covered his house and, and you know, kind of had a, a harrowing experience that day. Um, so just a neat book in, in that it just covered a lot of different things, but it was, it's a really short book as well. So a few different things quickly on that, that stuck out to me. One was, uh, he talks about eyewitness testimony and how that is the lowest form of evidence in science, but it's one of the highest forms of evidence in, in law. So, uh, kind of neat when he, when he was talking about that, um, I, I liked when he talked about the the differences of religion and science. Uh, one one area in, in particular, this was on page ninety nine. He said the theory of evolution is not something to believe in. Science follows evidence, and when strong evidence supports an idea, the concept of belief, when invoked the way religious people use the word, is unnecessary. In other words, established science is not an, an ensemble of beliefs. It's a system of ideas supported by very verifiable evidence. So uh, just helpful things like that throughout the book that kind of talked about the difference between uh, evidence in science, uh, faith, religion, um, theories versus belief, that, that sort of thing. Another question I, I really liked is uh, when, when he was asked about um, uh, actually a, a homeschooling thing. And, and so he, this is how he answered. You asked what I teach my children. My answer is I do not worry about what they know as much as I worry about how they think. This just might be the highest of all pedagogical goals because the most important moments in life occur at times when how we think will matter more than what we know. The most important moments in life occur at times when how we think will matter more than what we know. I try to have one, at least one science book on my list each year. And and so this, this, uh, although not, not probably, I probably need to go deeper into science, uh, but, um, but this was a really good overview on a lot of different topics and, um, very approachable as well. So maybe want to read more of, of, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's books, but, uh, if, if you're interested in, in some of these questions, it's, it's a quick read and, and something that, uh, that gets you thinking. (laughs) 
Now on to the next book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. This was book 7 of 52 for, for this year's reading list, and I read it in March. Now, C.S. Lewis is my favorite author, and I actually have eight of his books on my list this year, which I try not to do, but uh, seven of those books are part of a, a series, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, and I've never read those. Uh, my, my five-year-old daughter is actually listening to them right now, so she's going to get through them before I have read them. Uh, she's loving them. So it's, it's really cool. And, and I can't wait to talk to, to her about those, but that's not till later in the year. Uh, this book, the great divorce, I, I, uh, just read, I've read it before, but it was probably 20 years ago when I read it. it it's a short book and it is a work of fantasy. And I stress that point because I usually see this in the Christian nonfiction section of bookstores. And so Lewis said, this is a work of fantasy. So this is a work of fiction. And I think it's important to, to start off with that distinction. But uh, in this fantasy novel, it's written in the first person and the narrator it arrives at this place called Greytown. He arrives, arrives at the bus station in, in Greytown. And Greytown is, is kind of this uh, idea, kind of like a purgatory, where it's it's a last-ditch chance. It's kind of an intensified arena of choice that you'd, you'd, make, you'd basically have this choice throughout your lifetime. But in Greytown, it's, it's kind of your last chance to make this choice. So are you going to move towards heaven or are you going to move towards hell? And the really interesting thing is that people in this book basically make the same choice in this last chance scenario as they've made their entire lives. It's not like all of a sudden they get to this gray town and you can see the mountains in the distance and the mountains represent heaven. It's not as if you get to gray town and then you've not been wanting to move that way your entire life. And then you get to gray town and all of a sudden want to move that way. Uh, there's also this idea that you, if you, if you haven't been doing that your whole life, you don't have the substance in you to, to move that way. And so the grass actually hurts people's feet. It, the grass in, it, as you move towards the mountain is so substantial that you can't even walk, like just a, a good human being cannot walk on it. Like there has to be something different. And so this is an idea that kind of ties in with, with daily habits and, and even uh, an idea put forth in Mere Christianity, which is also by C.S. Lewis, and was on last year's reading list. But just this idea of, of every choice you make in your life, you're you're either moving one way or to, or another. And in Mere Christianity, he said you're you're either moving towards heaven or towards hell. And so th there's not like these these minor decisions in 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 a sense. There, every decision kind of puts you on a path one way or the other. And so a lot of the books on the books of Titans project will, will talk about that. And, and maybe some of them more on the daily habits side of things that, um, you know, you, you, you let something slide one day, it's just going to make it easier to make it, to let it slide on the next day. Or you, um, you, you let something, you, you make a good choice one day and, and that just kind of puts you on the path to, to, to making that choice, uh, in, in the future. So we also saw this in The Power and the Glory, a, a book I, I recently covered on, on the podcast here as well, where he talks about the fallacy of the deathbed confession. 
it, it's not as if you're going to live your whole life one way. And then at the end on your deathbed, you're going to, you're going to confess everything and, and, and change it. It's, it's the fallacy of the deathbed confession. So that idea comes up a lot in, in this book and, and you just see a variety of different characters, uh, meet the the narrator and, and they're on this final path and are they going to go towards the mountain or are they going to head back and go towards hell? So one uh, statement that, uh, that comes up is, is a, the, you see this character kind of making that, that final choice and there's an angel talking to him and the guy's trying to make these excuses of why he needs to go back. Um, and the angel says, this moment contains all moments. So this choice contains all choice. This moment contains all moments. Uh, so again, just that, that idea of, of every decision, uh, no matter how small, just it does, it does go one way or the other. Um, another really cool part is uh, they, they would talk about life on earth containing these glimpses of, of heaven. And so um, one of the characters says, when you painted on earth, at least in your earlier days, it was because you caught glimpses of heaven in the earthly landscape. The success of your painting was that it, that it enabled others to see the glimpses too. But here you are having the thing itself. It is from here that the messages came. There is not good telling us about this country, for we see it already. In fact, we see it better than you do. End quote. I just love that, that, that idea of glimpses. And, and it's kind of part of, of why I'm doing this reading project of, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, of seeking truth in the world's best books. I consider uh, some of these books to have those glimpses that, that Lewis talks about here, those glimpses of, of heaven. Uh, so Great Divorce, uh, one of my favorites. Again, hadn't read it in 20 years. Just read it again. Thoroughly enjoyable experience. Next up... Peace Like a River by Leif Enger. This is book nine of 52, and I read it in April. This is a novel, and it is a story of a man and his three kids. And the eldest, his eldest, this man's eldest son kills two intruders in their house. And then the rest of the novel is, is the story of the eldest son running from the law, and the father and the other children attempting to locate him. And it takes place in Minnesota and they travel into North Dakota as well to, to try to find the, um, the eldest son who's running from the law and just very vivid and real descriptions. I'm from Minnesota. I lived there for the first 14 years of my life. And so just kind of sparked some nostalgia. Uh, I could kind of picture those landscapes and, and picture the, the farms that, that they were on, uh, just, from, from visiting different family members uh, growing up and, and that sort of thing. But um, there's also a, a neat part that tied in with The Great Divorce where there's this scene of the afterlife. There's a scene of the, of, of the next world. And, and it was very similar to The Great Divorce and, and the description of, of an afterlife there. So that was just kind of a neat, a neat uh, part of the book. Uh, very, very well done. It, it was interesting also reading Peace Like a River right after Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory. And uh, I mentioned I covered The Power and the Glory in a different episode, but uh, that was very, I called it staccato. And staccato in music is like, you know, bop, 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 uh, just kind of quick, short statements. And, and, and for music, it'd be quick, quick, short notes. Um, 
compare in comparing that to legato and so peace like a river to me was legato it was just this beautiful prose beautiful writing it you felt like you were there and and then contrasting that with the book i'd read right before uh, graham greens where it's just like you know kind of like a machine gun fire uh so neat reading those two books together uh peace like a river actually references graham green um so again another neat neat connection point there Final book, The Orphan Mother by Robert Hicks. Uh, finished this one recently at the beginning of May. Uh, this was book 11 of 52 for my reading list this year. And Robert Hicks is a local author. I've met him on a, a few occasions. He, he lives near Franklin, Tennessee. And this is the second book I've read for him as part of this reading project. Last year, I read The Widow of the South. And The Orphan Mother continues from basically from the end of, of Widow of the South. And if you're unfamiliar with, with either of those stories, uh, the, the city of Franklin, Tennessee was the scene of a major civil war battle on November, I think it was 30th, 29th or 30th in 1864. 10,000 people were killed on, in that battle and a lot of them in hand-to-hand combat. So, uh, just, and, and a lot of it took place like near or in the, the, Franklin City, the downtown area, um, but today it's 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 one of the most beloved like Main Street America cities. Uh, I I love going there. I live like 15 minutes away from it, and and that's where this book takes place is in Franklin, Tennessee. And what happens is is Mariah, uh, one of the the former slaves in Widow of the South, and in who is a real person. Um, this book is fiction, uh, historical fiction, but uh, it tells the story of Mariah, and who is a former slave and living in Franklin, Tennessee, just a few years after the end of the Civil War. So it's 1867. She's just a few years into her freedom, but she's still living amongst all the people that she lived w- amongst as a slave. So just kind of fascinating time to consider. Uh, here, here are all these former slaves that are living in the same city and, and around the same people. And then, you know, racism is, is rampant. And so that's goes into this story. Uh, Mariah's son is actually killed. And uh, Mariah spends the rest of the novel trying to find the, the killers and to seek justice. And so... Neat story, just a lot of uh, interesting things to consider. But then also, I, I, I love Franklin, Tennessee, and, and just for something to take place in Franklin, Tennessee, and, and for me to be able to picture it, uh, I, I love that. It helps me know and learn about the area in which I live. And I mentioned that last year, too, when I covered Widow, Widow of the South. And yes, it's, it's historical fiction, but you're, you're, you're hearing about people who, who actually existed, and then Robert Hicks just kind of takes what we do know of these people and, and just weaves a story out of that. The the thing that stuck out to me the most about this book was the title, The The Orphan Mother. And uh, Mariah's son is 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 killed and that is her only son. And her her husband had died earlier. And so Mar- Mariah is just left alone. But there's no word for a mother who has lost her only child. Uh, we have a word for an orphan. Uh, we have a word for a widow, but we don't have a word for a mother who has lost her only son. And so Robert Hicks 
refers to her as the orphan mother, since we don't have that word. He he calls her the orphan mother. And it, it's an amazing title, uh, a, a perfect title in a way. And one that just really makes you think and helps you to recall the entire the entire book. So uh, Widow of the South was also a fantastic title because the the uh, main character in that book was actually not a widow, but she was referred to as a widow of the South because Franklin, Tennessee was the battle of Franklin, Tennessee was was considered kind of the last the the death knell for the Confederacy. So that was their their last stand. They lost uh, four or five generals in that battle. And so the the widow of the South, she was she, she was the widow, not she didn't lose her husband, but of of the entire South of 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 the Confederacy. And so just an interesting title there and then also with the orphan mother, another another interesting title. So that does it for these uh, six books. Uh, as for right now, I'm reading Furious Hours by Casey Kep. And this book was actually sent to me last year. I hadn't heard of it, but it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, uh, it's a story. It's, it's uh, a nonfiction, but it, it's broken up into three parts. And it's a story about a serial killer in Alexander City, Alabama. And then uh, the the so the first part of the book is about the serial killer, the second part of the book is about the lawyer, and uh, lawyer of a of a case that is related to the serial killer, and then the final section is about Harper Lee who wrote How to Kill a Mockingbird, or To Kill a Mockingbird, <laughs> not not How to Kill a Mockingbird, but um. I haven't got to gotten to the third part yet, but but Harper Lee was was so fascinated with this story that took place in the in the 1970s that she she was going to try to write a book about this. Uh, the book never came out, and, and I'll find out why in the in the third section. But I I used to work at Russell Corporation uh, Athletic Apparel Company, and they started in Alexander City. So I I worked in the Atlanta office, but I, I would often go to to Alexander City. So. Uh, I had no idea about this story, the serial killer in the in the 1970s. So, but it's really fascinating because it's the city that I've been to quite often, and um, I just had no idea. So, it's one of those things. I I, I love reading books about places where I've been. Uh, so, you know, the orphan mother, um, Franklin, Tennessee, uh, Peace Like a River in Minnesota, um, and then Bel Canto, which I mentioned, uh, took place in in Peru uh, in in a few blocks from, from where, where I, I lived, uh, for, for a time during, during grad school. So I'm, I'm really enjoying this fur- furious hours and I have to make a confession here that I skipped a book. I, I tried to, once I set my reading list in order of 52 books, I tried to just go straight through, but I got to book number 12 after the orphan mother and book number 12 is Hamlet by Shakespeare. And I just couldn't do it. I tried really hard and I finally just, I, I'm going to go to the next book, which is Furious Hours, and then I will come back to Hamlet. But part of it is just everything going on with, with coronavirus. Uh, there's just so much, and, and I've talked to other people too that are, are having a very hard time reading during this time. And I just knew I didn't have the brain power to, to devote 
to how I wanted to read Hamlet. I just didn't want to skim through it. I, I really wanted to, to delve in deep. And I knew I didn't have it right in me to do right now. So I, I will come back to that. But um, uh, the the other side of this is is uh, one of my clients I do website development is Landmark Booksellers right here in, in Franklin, Tennessee. And they've had a miracle happen in the, in the last month where a local author decided to release her signed versions, exclusive signed versions of her book through the bookstore. Uh, since I do their website, that means that all orders were placed online in, in the e-commerce store. And so last year we sold one book on the website, uh, one book for 2019. This year we sold over 6,000 and in the last uh, few weeks. So uh, it's been amazing and it's been amazing, amazing to see it, this, this, see this happen. Um, it's, it's basically saved this bookstore. Uh, I mean, they had to close during, you know, coronavirus and, and it's been very hard for independent booksellers. And, and now um, they've sold, they've sold over 6,000 books. And so it's been cool. It's been a lot of work. Uh, I'm, I'm working on the, the shipping side of things now, which is really cool because, you know, there's the digital side of everything, but then now we're also figuring out how to, to ship all these books and print the labels and, and, and do all that. So really cool, uh, fun story. It was covered in the news. Um, and, and just people from all over the, the United States and, and some other countries are, 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 are ordering this book and, and, um, and, joining in. So it's really cool to see. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Love to hear from you. Uh, you can email me at eric at, at booksoftitans.com. That's Eric with a K. Let me know what you thought of uh, any of the books that I, I discussed today. I, I also want to open this up to, uh, to, to write letters. You can write a, le- a letter directly to me at Eric Rostad. So E-R-I-K Rostad, R-O-S-T-A-D, at P.O. Box 1333, Franklin, Tennessee, 37065. And the reason I mention that is I got a letter this week, and it was awesome. I mean, it was like a 10-page letter, uh, somebody talking about different episodes of the, of the podcast and books they've read. I actually haven't read the full letter yet, but uh, I plan to soon and then and then respond to it. But that was such a joy to get that letter, and, I, and I'd love to get other letters like that. So maybe instead of emailing, uh, maybe you have a little more time now with, with everything going on with coronavirus, write me a letter and I, w- I will write back. Uh, so that'd be cool to, uh, to do that. So uh, as I said, I'm currently reading Furious Hours, uh, enjoying it a lot. And, uh, and next after that is Between the World and Me. So that's uh, that's coming up after Furious Hours. Then I'll probably hit uh, go back into Hamlet after that. Want to uh, remind you that you can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans, and the website is stock full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I'll be back in a couple weeks, and until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. Mm-hmm.